Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So we're here on July the 28th. Um, it's evening now. Sun just set. Uh, temperatures are cooling down a bit here after what's been yet another muggy day in Boston. A little apropos for, I think, our discussion this this evening. Um, what are we talking about? Well, we're going to talk climate and the weather the last week or so has given rise to our discussion for today but it's something we had wanted to talk about for a while but anyway it's just good to see you Ricky we try to nail you down while we can try to record last week you were out in San Francisco tried to record earlier this week you were in in New York so any chance we can get while you're in Boston we we got to try to get together and record yeah well you know I just got over COVID so I figured in this in this potential two to three week grace period I get all my uh get all my my travel out of me well that's i'm gonna hold you to that and then maybe we can do this more often uh but but to to your point uh climate is something we haven't done in issue like a full episode on in the year and a half that we've been doing this podcast at all and it's something we have been circling for a while and uh some recent events both legislatively and judicially and then of course the weather came along and we just felt like this was the right time to do it. So up here in Boston, it's been, we had a, a streak of seven days in a row that were 90 plus degrees, which is one of the longest streaks that we've ever had. We, we hit a hundred degrees over the weekend, which was the highest on that date. I think it was the highest on July 24th ever or whatever, but we, we didn't quite reach our record 104 degree temperature. And, Certainly, it's been far worse in other parts of the country in south and now in the Northwest and Europe's been getting crushed. So it just felt like there was no better time to talk about climate and what we have done and what we have failed to do than with this episode. Yeah, um, I mean, I think people have been following this issue for a long time time um and i would count myself among those um have felt like there were different kind of crescendos and things coming to a head but as you're right to point out nothing ever resulted in in legislation so it's kind of uh it it feels like as good a day as any but perhaps like a particularly special day even though um I'm not entirely sure how great I feel about this legislation, but the fact that we have something in hand where we haven't for a long time, um, or we haven't really ever um, in, a, in any kind of comprehensive way, it, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know if bittersweet's the right word, but on the backs of what has felt like a crazy couple of weeks and crazy couple of years in, in weather, really, um, it feels feels like the time is right. (laughs) 
All right. So before we get into it, uh, let's just remind everyone out there that this podcast has is brought to you by the hardworking guys over at Cannon Hill Work Woodworking. You know that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. That's Cannon with two N's. And Ricky, our, our good friend and, and founder of Cannon Hill Wood, Zach Hardoon, he texted me the other day his about his favorite thing at the playground. What do you think his favorite thing at the playground is? I can only imagine that it's a seesaw. but It's I'm a seesaw, of course. Look at you, Ricky. Nothing gets by you. A couple weeks off, fresh, glad to see long COVID hasn't set in. So, <laughs> got it. No brain fog here, Brandon. All right. So I saw a tweet the other day that I thought was kind of humorous. And it said, the year is 2007. Minimum wage is 725. Congress is debating gay marriage and promising to do something on climate change. And then the next tweet said, it's, it's 2022. Minimum wage is 725. Congress is debating gay marriage and promising to take action on climate change, which is darkly humorous. So, Ricky, as you noted, you're someone that's been following this issue, not just from afar, but a little more in depth than I would say the average person has been for a number of years. So where do you want to start? How do, how do we end up with what we have or what we don't have today? Yeah, um, I think it's obviously this, it, this is one of those topics that um, you can really slice in, in a bunch of ways. I think, you know, before we start, I'll throw my disclaimer out there. I'm, I obviously work in the energy industry, but these opinions that I'll express today are somewhat researched, but at the end of the day, mine and mine alone. Um, I feel like on the, you know, on the backs of your guys' law expertise for our row discussion, I would, I would throw that out there for today's talk on climate and and really by proxy like energy a lot of what's in the bill to address climate change is is energy related um i think i'll you know start a little bit with like i'm gonna as i do sometimes just go straight for the forest really big picture um and then i think it's you know what you were saying that inaction in congress i mean you could point to dozens of different issues but this one particularly given kind of recent weather events and predictions of future similar weather events. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think there's like kind of a different, a different tone to this a bit. And then, um, and then, yeah, I think we should spend a little time just trying to understand what's out there. Um, <laughs> it's that, you know, the ugly reconciliation process again is, is kind of rearing it's, it's, um, it's ugly head here. And, and we can talk a little bit about that. And um, I don't know. How's that feel? Sounds good to me. All right. So, I mean, I don't, I guess, I don't think it's probably worth spending too much time, uh, you know, talking about the science. I think one of the things that's become clear to me is that actually, you know, Republicans who for years poured money into, um, you know, kind of trying to debunk the any theory around climate change. And I won't even put this on Republicans directly, um, although I think you could. There's uh, you know, plenty of industries that that were were worried about 
any types of legislation trying to address climate change and what they might do to them financially, some directly, some indirectly. Um, but it's always been like a, are, are we going to address climate change or the economy? And, you know, it, we've always been that it's the economy, stupid, I guess. Um, but I, I think it is important to just talk about what kind of the scientific consensus is around climate change. So obviously, it's not something that consistently happens everywhere. So they had to re, they had to rebrand it from global warming to climate change because every time it snowed, somebody would say, "How are we having global warming? It's snowing outside." And obviously, discrete weather events and what people are talking about when they refer to climate change, although they're related, are not the same thing. Um, but the IPCC, so this Intergovernmental Plan Panel on Climate Change, um, that has been kind of undergoing kind of mammoth um, scientific research and modeling and um, basically gathering opinions of the scientists who study this the most closely and trying to understand, you know, what is the what is sort of the problem here? What are we trying to avoid and how do we avoid it? And the summary conclusion, although there are kind of many, is that we're trying to limit um, global average temperature rise by one and a half degrees Celsius. It's likely that we're not going to meet that target, but there's like a, a secondary consensus that keeping it somewhere between one and a half and two degrees Celsius is really required to kind of limit some of the more catastrophic impacts of climate change. Um, and that's one and a half degrees Celsius com as compared to pre-industrial levels. So obviously climate change is tied to carbon emissions. Carbon emissions really took off um, in sort of uh, in our in sort of the lifetime of human civilization under um, under sort of the in industrial revolution when we started burning fossil fuels for energy. Um, the goal or like how we're going to do that is to get to net zero, meaning um, for every amount of carbon or every, you know, metric ton of CO2 that you emit, you're able to kind of capture and sequester either by growing trees or some other types of processes, that amount of carbon in the atmosphere. So um, the net impact of carbon in the atmosphere being zero and actually negative, meaning that you're taking out more carbon from the atmosphere than you're putting up by 2050. And in order to get to that one and a half degree to, to two degree limit, you're trying to limit those emissions uh, or cut current carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. So that is, see, when they were talking about that original goal, um, like seven, eight years ago, that was seemed far away. 15 years is now um, almost there. Um, and we've made some strides. There have been some things that have happened that have uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally from switching from coal to natural gas to just, you know, increasing fuel efficiency of cars on average, like a number of different things have helped, but certainly not to the degree that we needed to be making changes in order to get to sort of where we needed to be that the, you know, scientific community is telling us that we needed to be. And what we're seeing today, or what we have been seeing over the last 10 or 20 years, um, is, is kind of what they, you know, what would deem like the tip of the iceberg, in that we have pro, <laughs> yeah, as it were, unintended. Unintended, right? So just a couple of things, we hit a land temperature record in the UK, um, last week of 104 degrees or something like that. Um, we've got 
right now, torrential flooding in Kentucky, some of the worst flooding this state has ever seen. Obviously, you already uh, uh, addressed some of the prolonged heat waves in Massachusetts. And any one of these events um, taken in isolation are things that can happen or and have happened through the natural course of history. But what climate change is um, doing is making these events more and more likely and making severe storms more and more severe and really just changing our natural environment in ways that we don't even really understand, um, although most of the predictions about how it's changing are not good. So sea level rise, obviously rising global temperatures, but really just changing environments in so many different places. And what the worry is, is that they will change so quickly that we won't be able to adapt in many places. And of course, the communities and the places with the least amount of resources uh, to adapt will feel the brunt of this the most. But um, I think it's clear that even here in the U.S. with like our abundance of resources, um, you know, there are certain things that you really just can't deal with in mother with mother nature. Um, I don't know if you lost power in Boston. We had a transformer blow and I was out for, I think we, I lost power for like 14 hours, which definitely the longest that I've been without power um, that, that I can like remember. And that wasn't storm related, just straight heat, air conditioners, blasting full tilt everywhere. And the, you know, grid or whatever the Transformers are just things that kind of take power from different places. And if they get overloaded at certain places can blow and then then you can't really feed like a local distribution system and they can be a pains in the butt to try and fix. <laughs> yeah, we talked, I, I went without power, not for 14 hours. It was kind of like, I was joking. It was like periodic, like rolling blackouts. Like I would lose power for an hour here, hour there over the course of the weekend. And we, we, the closest we've come to having this discussion is when we talked about how the snow in Texas back in last March had knocked out their grid. And now we have the heat in Massachusetts, in Boston, knocking out parts of our grid, which is, I think speaks to your point. Um, I, I want to back up a little bit to your larger point about how, the discussion has changed nationally, and it's a subtle change, like you mentioned, but it's it's an important change because for years, for really decades, at least when we were growing up, it felt like there were people that were denying climate change. And you're right. Most of them were on the right conservative Republicans. I think you acknowledge correctly there are reasons for that, that a lot of like oil and gas are industries are like in Republican-led states. So there are economic, political ties there. But it felt like there was a lot of science coming out of science, quote unquote, being like climate change isn't real. And now it seems to have, and I, you were joking that like sometimes people look out their window and see the weather and they say, look, climate change isn't real. And I wanted to interject, but I didn't want to interrupt you. But I was like, and every time that person is former President Trump, who used to tweet just, just hilarious, but like nonsensical things. Look, I, I just went and quickly looked it up. And so in 2019, he tweeted, in the beautiful Midwest, wind chill, temperature, wind chill temperatures are reaching minus 60 degrees, the coldest ever recorded. In coming days, expect it even colder. People can't last outside even for minutes. What the hell is going on with global warming? Please come back fast. We need you. <laughs> and then earlier that month, that month in 2019, in March 2019, he said, be careful and try to stay in your house. Large parts of the country are suffering from tremendous amounts of snow and near record setting cold. Wouldn't be bad to have a little bit of that a good old fashioned global warming right now. <laughs> 
which again, it's hilarious, but like, it's not that funny because like he's the leader of the country and one of the leaders of the free world at that point, uh, who clearly doesn't know what like climate change is, or if he does know is making a mockery of it. Um, but I do think that the discussion has shifted and now it seems broadly that the consensus across the spectrum is that the climate is changing. And I would say the new tactic, whether it's amongst the oil and gas industries or the conservative movement or Republican party has been, look, climate, the climate changes like throughout human history, the climate has always changed. We've had, Ice ages famously in the past, we've had times where the temperature has been super high and super low. And just like, this is the natural evolution of the planet. And so as opposed to trying to make all of these new laws to address climate change, what we should be doing instead is adapting how we live to better live with the effects of climate change that we know is inevitably coming. So it's quite honestly, I think it's quite an effective pivot. What what do you think about that? Well, it's, I mean, it's not, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've definitely heard that argument. Again, scientists will point to the fact that it is the term, the scientific term, again, horrible branding in this community, but it's anthropogenic climate change, meaning it is caused by humans, right? Like it's not, there, there have been changes to the atmospheric composition and there has been like like you said ice ages and and other things that have happened but never before in history have has any like one group or population caused these things to happen nor have they really had any tools or like anything at their disposal to maybe mitigate some of these things from happening so the adaptation right they talk about it in sort of two different buckets there's mitigation which is like what can we do to try and make this less bad or try and stop this altogether and then there's adaptation which is some and we and scientists across the board agree that some like we're feeling it today but it's going to get worse and to some degree we will need to do we will need to figure out adaptation whether that's seawalls or figuring out how to increase um, like shade and figure out how to like cool urban heat islands. Like there are a lot of things from an adapt adaptation side of things that we need to do. But again, it doesn't, I, I think like scientifically, there's still a consensus that <clears throat> there are things that we can do to mitigate the worst impacts and that we have to do them. Um, because it's not just about us and our ability to adapt. We're causing, we are, we, the United States, unfortunately, have been the largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions throughout our history. And like, we kind of have some responsibility here. Well, I mean, I I think that that is like the operative word. Do we have responsibility? I think some people would say that most certainly we do. And I don't know that. Yeah. And this is, this is really the problem and the problem with getting action on climate change. Um, Right. And so you said that there are scientific consensus consensuses about like what are the steps that we need to be taking. And on the other hand, it's Congress not having taken those those steps in the last this century, the last couple of decades, however you want to you want to frame it. So the steps that have been taken because Congress has largely failed to act to address climate change have come at the administrative level. 
have come through creations of organizations like the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Uh, and the EPA has done a lot since its creation 50 years ago to deal with a lot of environmental issues in the United States. Um, in, in recent decades, that has increasingly encompassed issues to try to mitigate climate change. On the last day of the Supreme Court's term, and we talked extensively about the Supreme Court's term, but we, we actually didn't talk about this, this final case because they released it on the very last day of, of their term. There was this case, West Virginia versus the EPA, in which West Virginia and uh, many other states who had joined on with West Virginia were challenging the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to essentially enforce emissions, carbon emissions in states. And the EPA was doing this because they recognized that as emissions continue to go up, that, as you had laid out earlier, contributes to global warming and it contributes to all the negative health effects that happens happen both environmentally, like the health of our environment, but also the health of our people. And many states were challenging the authority of the EPA to do this. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the court in a six to three ruling down ideological lines ruled that the EPA had overstepped its authority in trying to regulate carbon emissions from the various states and that the EPA would no longer have the authority to try to regulate the states in in these manners. Now, there's a number of implications to this ruling, but perhaps the most obvious, the one that got the most headlines is like, look, as a country, we have a Congress that hasn't done anything to address climate change. The only organization part of our government that is doing anything is the Environmental Protection Agency. And now the Supreme Court has pretty much gone and neutered the EPA as they try to act to address issues of climate change. So do you, did you have any takes on that decision as it came out? And now almost a month later, since it's been out, have you had a chance to reflect on that and, and what it might mean for our, our, our country, really? Yeah, I mean... Um, and this was a, <laughs> I feel like we ran down the docket of Supreme Court decisions and somehow miss and miss this one. And I think that's more of a shame on me than on you. Um, the, I, <laughs> I, I have a, like a couple of feelings. I mean, mainly, yeah, I mean, it furthers my distrust or, uh, I don't know if dislike is too strong of a word, but, uh, you know, faith in the, in this court to do to take into account, like, regardless of maybe what you think about the um, sort of the, I don't know if the jurisprudence of this decision is like how, how that applies and just like whether or not this was the right decision legally and whether or not EPA had overstepped its bounds. Like, again, there's kind of a practical implication, but I think from my perspective, the, the practical implication is almost zero. Like the EPA, although it has been doing a lot. Most of like the environmental gains have been based on economic reasons. Like we're reducing the use of coal in favor of natural gas because we had an abundance of natural gas. That was not really an EPA like bit of legislation. There's some stuff on like coal on like whatever sulfur scrubbers and things and coal power plants that were probably already squarely within the EPA's jurisdiction under the Clean Air and Clean Water Act. Clean air being a, I believe a Nixon, uh, either a Nixon or 
or maybe Bush one. I don't know. I'm going to mess up and I have to go look at this again. But like these were actually like many of the EPA's biggest legislations were under um, were under Republican leadership. Um, so I'll, I'll just throw that out there. But yeah, in general, like although the EPA was kind of the only federal body able to do anything and they did some stuff with um, some like fuel efficiency standards and like a few things in general, they were pretty, uh, pretty unable to, to enact wide scale change. I think a lot of the stuff that we're seeing in terms of adopting renewable energy technologies on the back of um, renewable energy credits, which are budget, which are budgetary decisions. So not made by the EPA. And then the other sort of economic factors that I was alluding to that really drove some of the transition away from coal. So much to West Virginia's chagrin, I really don't think it was, it was an EPA thing. Um, But at the same time, I think it is too bad. Like I think the EPA Environmental Protection Agency would have, should have somehow jurisdiction over the environment. Like that's, that would seem to be logical. I guess the last thing I'll say is it does show, and we talked about this kind of the, just in general, like the tenuous nature of things that are not legislatively based and trying to use them to do other things, right? So when Trump came into power, he put the Oklahoma AG uh, attorney general in charge of the EPA and like whether or not it was still like mandated to do some stuff, it wasn't going to do anything, right? Like they took all the climate change, any references to climate change off the website, and now there's no enforcement from the EPA. And so when you think about the timescales of the types of investments and the types of decisions that people need to make to have a dent on climate change, like climate is like 10, 20, 50 century long uh, uh, timescales, like not a four-year cycle, not a two-year cycle. The EPA was never going to be the right avenue. And so, yeah, it's a shame, but maybe in the grand scheme of things, it like is not going to have a huge impact. Sure. So it, it seems to keep coming back to Congress. If if the EPA can't do anything, if judges aren't going to do anything, and they, they shouldn't. So it needs to come back to our, our legislative body actually doing something. And there's been a lot of pressure. President Biden came up to Massachusetts actually last week. I'm sure you saw up in, in Somerset, maybe not his finest speech. But uh, in that speech, he was addressing some the, the climate change. He was at a, a previously coal-fired plant and was addressing things. And there was a, there was a big push from activists for President Biden to declare a climate change emergency, which would have unlocked and would still potentially unlock federal powers because once the president declares a state of emergency, it unlocks federal powers to do things that the administration would otherwise not be able to do. Uh, but he refrained as he is wont to do. He does for all his flaws, I, I love that he does respect and does have faith in the legislative frog, uh, process as in the legislative bodies as frustrating as they are and as frustrating as that faith may be. But uh, he's, he pretty much said that it's up to Congress and the, the polling backs that up. And when the New York Times just came out with a poll last week where it said, who do you think should, do you think the government should act on the issue? And if so, who do you think should? And 52% said the president, 57% said their governor, and 61% said that Congress should do more. And when the reason Congress hasn't done more comes back, at least in recent years, comes back to our recent, our typical suspects 
and Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Sinema. Uh, Manchin in particular, obviously, being a senator from West Virginia. And Manchin was asked about Biden potentially declaring a climate emergency. And he said, let's see what Congress does. Congress needs to act. Well, after a week in which 100 million Americans dealt with heat advisories and 60 million Americans dealt with 100 degree plus temperatures, July 28th, Manchin seems to have acted. And so this really came out of nowhere. Everyone thought that this bill was dead, but it appears that Senator Manchin and uh, Senator Schumer from New York, who's the, the leader of majority in the Senate, have struck an agreement to inject a bill through the reconciliation process, as you mentioned, as we've talked about this program before, to inject a record $370 billion into climate initiatives. So when that really a bombshell dropped this morning, what were your thoughts on that? Um, I mean, you know, coming from like two weeks ago when Joe Manchin was like, I can't, I can't really have any part to do with this climate deal. I was, I, it definitely came as a shock. Um, I certainly picked up the New York times and the journal to try and figure out like what was actually agreed to. I think the name of the bill is like, what is it, a measure to like stem inflation or something. <laughs> um, and just like trying to piece together like what it would do and what it didn't do. I mean, I definitely recall as progressives were, you know, after after Democrats took the Senate and the White House and, you know, at the beginning of 2021, like we were talking about a six trillion dollar package, I think at first, and then a three trillion dollar package, and now we're at uh, three sixty nine billion, which is nothing to scoff at. But we should also keep in mind that in the last like month, we authorized two hundred eighty billion for uh, you know over in in the course of a couple different packages for additional arms support for Ukraine. Like we're we're still throwing money around willy nilly and 370 billion is definitely nothing to scoff at. But when we think about the scale of the problem and sort of what we are being tasked to do, which is completely overhaul our energy industry and energy infrastructure in order to, uh, you know, get at some of those 50% reductions by 2030 hundred percent net zero by 2050 types of goals. I forget exactly what our specific targets are. It's, it's nice. And it's nice that we got somewhere, but again, 50 Democrats, no Republicans. And it's just another one of those, like, yes, I'm, I'm happy that it's better than nothing. Are you, are you happy? I'll leave it to you to be super negative about an absolutely record breaking potential deal because Quite honestly, you don't even know if you have 50 Democrats on this yet. We don't know if Sinema is going to sign on to it. She's going to say something about, like, I don't like the way it's retaxing, like, some somebody. that yeah. She missed, like, the caucus meeting. She, like, wasn't there for, like, some meeting about it. And she's like, oh, I got to read it. And it's just like, she's such a joke. But anyways, go on. <laughs> I don't think she's a joke, for the record. Uh, but... So let's, let's look at this hypothetical bill, because we don't know if it's going to pass... Uh, if you aren't unfamiliar or don't remember the reconciliation process, it's this really obscure Senate parliamentary rule that was recently discovered that the Democrats have used since 
they have come back into power since 2020 to try to get bills through on a with 51 votes. Normally you need 60. We've talked at infinitum about like the filibuster. That's why you need 60 votes. But through this reconciliation process for certain budget things, you can pass what's known as a reconciliation bill. So the Democrats have been trying to push a massive reconciliation bill, as Ricky noted, for over a year at this point. But Manchin just has refused to go along with it, cinema to a lesser extent. And both of them are probably shielding some of their colleagues in terms of that. But just when it appeared all but dead and the the climate change initiatives appeared all but dead, all of a sudden we have a bill back on the table. So again, it's far from actually being passed, but I want to look into what it would do. And so as we mentioned, it's 369 billion. The vast majority of that, about 300 billion, would go to tax credits for like a slate of uh, clean energy technologies. Those include solar power, wind power, energy storage, carbon capture, hydrogen, and uh, small-scale nuclear power, which is interesting and probably worth a larger discretion, uh, discussion. Um, it's, this is huge, particularly for domestic manufacturers, because previously developers, like if you developed a project for solar energy or wind energy or whatever, you would get a tax credit. But this, a lot of these credits are going to domestic manufacturers. So Ricky, kind of to your point, this, this is obviously the main goal of it is a, a climate to address like climate change, but uh, I would say not even an ancillary goal, but uh, one B goal here is that it's huge for economic reasons. This is going to eject in, a ton of tax credits into the renewable energy space for domestic manufacturers in particular, especially when simultaneously we're working on anti-competitive bills against China. And China is far ahead of us in terms of a lot of their renewable energy manufacturing. So this would be huge for the United States for um, a number of reasons. On uh, a couple other things that this this does, it would include $7,500 uh, credits for people that buy electric vehicles and smaller tax credits for those that buy used electric vehicles, which might incentivize some people. Um, $7,500 is not nothing. I feel like I've seen more and more Teslas on the road lately, Ricky. I don't know if that's just me, but or maybe I'm just looking for them, but it feels like they are far more ubiquitous than they have been previously. Um, and the way that a lot of the money would be raised for this is that it would include a fee on the emissions of oil and gas companies, methane, uh, that would begin in a few years. And it would also send $60 billion dollars to low-income areas and communities of color that face disproportionate environmental pollution, which is something you alluded to more broadly earlier about how the nations, the poorest nations are the ones that are going to most struggle to adapt to climate change, but also that the environmental impacts of climate change here in the United States disproportionately affect cities and people of color. And then finally, and I thought this was super interesting, this is going to be paired with legislation to roll back like the permitting process to cut down the permitting process. And a lot of Democrats like that because it's going to be quicker approvals for like wind and solar farms, as well as like power lines to transport clean energy. But the reason Republicans have traditionally been against, have been about like cutting the permitting process is because it'll be easier to get pipeline approvals and quicker access to like oil, gas, and mineral deposits. So there's definitely one of those things that people on the far left are probably going to push back against cutting the permitting process, but people in the middle hopefully will come to some common sense and be like, look, this is, 
this is necessary that the winds from being able to more quickly put up solar farms and wind farms negate any losses that potentially come from quicker pipelines. To me, I'm like, all right, this is one of those things that Manchin has long said of like, let's have a broad energy policy where we're investing in all sorts of different energies. But all right, thoughts on the potential bill and what it does, even if it's not quite as as large as you would like, what do you think about what it proposes to do? Yeah, I mean, it definitely does a couple of good things um, on the tax credit side. So these tax credits are like a very uh, esoteric and like policy wonky way of injecting money into the economy without actually like cutting a check, right? So the way it works is you build a wind farm or you build uh, a solar farm and you can use either this like investment tax credit or production tax credit to offset a tax liability. So typically it's a way for somebody to pay less in taxes. um, And that's, so like, that's part of this 369 billion, which is fine. It's actually been kind of a longstanding policy. um, And we're really getting an extension of that. And part of what was good here um, is that some of these extensions are significantly longer term. And so if you know about kind of the payback periods for these projects, like wind and solar requires kind of a long-term commitment. Now, the the timing is funny, not funny, but maybe coincidental in a way that many of these technologies are actually cost competitive, if not better on a, even like on a merchant basis based on where, power prices are today, right? So natural gas is through the roof. And actually, if you're like running a wind farm, you're doing very well because you don't actually pay for any, um, you don't pay for anything in, sorry, my God. Yeah, that's what it is. You, it, like, you don't, there's no input commodity to create the electricity, right? When the wind blows, the wind is free. So like the production, these credits are important, but really the way a lot of these, um facilities have been built have been through like corporate partnerships or offtakes from utility agreements. And so, yes, it it's helpful. And kind of like the federal government is, is pitching in, in terms of like how much additional uh, capacity like that we'll see because of this. I mean, I think it, it won't be, it won't be insignificant, but I would say a lot of this stuff was going to be built anyways, because a lot of either states and or corporations were getting sick of waiting for the government. And so now what's going to happen is that, you know, the broader country is going to pay instead of like a corporation paying a premium, they're going to get a tax break and then be able to sign um, a wind agreement at a lower rate. So, I mean, there are like a lot, you know, we, we, when we focus on, or when we, we in like sort of the environmental community think about these kinds of legislation, we definitely focus on what's the incremental benefit, like what was going to happen anyways, and what additional are we doing? Um, I think the permitting process one is an interesting one because um, a lot of people within the energy industry would point to this transmission infrastructure being a huge bottleneck for us to really accelerate getting these renewables online. Oh, and I guess I shouldn't poo-poo that like adding tax credits for storage, adding tax credits for other technologies like small-scale nuclear, like you pointed out, that's 
as far as I know, that's pretty new. Um, and that's definitely interesting. I think like overall, we are going to have to throw tons of different technologies at it. And I think it's to our benefit, again, personally speaking, to try many technologies and not, and like be kind of like diversify our risks here a little bit. <laughs> um, but the the permitting process is interesting because like you pointed out, there are benefits to renewables, but also benefits to tr traditional fossil fuels. And what the skeptics out there are saying is that Joe Manchin basically saw like, here's going to, here's a way to like increase West Virginia shale exploration, get some pipelines through our States. And yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, perhaps like rightly so, because he's been the guy who's just been saying, you know, no, like coal in West Virginia is like all we do here. Um, and now he's kind of finally relenting and not relenting in the way that, you know, progressives would like in trying to build up a renewable energy, but he's now going to shift over to natural gas. And so, the, I mean, again, they're, they're dead. And, and that's not to say that that is not a benefit. That's certainly a decrease in general in terms of um, carbon intensity for, and like emission intensity. Uh, coal is by far the biggest problem um, compared to natural gas. Natural gas has its issues, but with some of these additional caveats for methane um, and things that are going to try and tax those who are sort of lackadaisical about how they release methane into the atmosphere. I mean, yeah, there there's definitely stuff to like about it. Um, I think the biggest challenge is that it still feels like a very piecemeal approach. And I think the thing when I think about climate change and what disheartens me the most is that like even if you are like a small government freedom-loving republican the i think the very essence of government is around things like how do we manage public goods right like it's that classic tragedy the commons thing you learn if you even if you only sit into an econ class for like five days they're going to tell you that individuals just don't have an incentive to manage things that don't cost them any money. So like, right, like the the Boston Common being one of those things, like if everyone can come graze their cows here, they're going to do that. And there's no incentive for an individual not to bring their cow there because they don't get the benefit of, of that. And our environment is so similar that like, well, yeah, why would I not drive my car that's not in and of itself going to do anything. But if we all collectively do it, then somebody like 25 years down the road is going to benefit. And that is like, like that for me is a real place for government to step in and say, look, as a society, not only as the United States, but as part, you know, part of this global community, we have a responsibility to try and like keep this thing going for generations after us. And that like has, it's always been a, the economy or this. And I think the thing that's most disheartening about having to go through the reconciliation process is that with, like you said, I think Manchin and Cinema were maybe giving some cover to some Democrats who probably would have wanted to say no. I think that should have been fine, but there should have been some moderate Republicans who wanted to say yes and should have like, this, this is kind of like, all right, we can agree on what the problem is. Now let's get together to devise the solution. But instead we have like 
I, yeah, I don't know what we have. Instead, this is what we get. And it's like, it's something, you know, for the rest of time, it's inflation is going to be blamed on that one time that we did a climate bill. And it's just, I don't know, it's, it's kind of sad um, that this is the only way to do something. Um, yeah, clearly I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I don't disagree. It's frustrating and sad that we might, we're going to have to scramble to get 50 votes for something that affects us all. And you would think that if, if you look around that we're seeing the effects and I know it's just weather, but it, it, this isn't something that just happened last week, right? This is something that we've said has been like the wildfires in the uh, out West and that's happening in France too. I don't know if you've seen that, like it's just wildfires are ripping through like the France, um, the French countryside. Uh, and then you have, whether the, the hurricanes in the Southeast or the tornadoes that, that ravaged uh, last year in the Midwest and the snow in the, in the South, like it's, it feels increasingly like this is, is proof of what scientists had said were coming. And as you have said, is only going to get worse. And so it's frustrating for the proof to kind of be right there. It was far easier when these things weren't happening to bury your head in the figurative sand and say like, all right, it's just these scientists talking crazy. But as, these things start to happen more and more, it gets harder and harder to do that. So I don't disagree that it's frustrating. I do think we're underselling it. Like the previous biggest bill that we've addressed towards climate change, I think was in 2009 under the Obama administration was like 90 billion. And so this is what, four times that. And so it's, it's not nothing, but I guess I would throw it back to you where you said it's a piecemeal approach. So say, you had unlimited money and that it wasn't going to affect inflation. And one of the reasons Manchin got on board with this is because theoretically this package should not affect inflation. What what would you have the government do? What would be a more comprehensive bill that you would have liked to have seen passed if it was possible? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think, um, you know, definitely something that put money towards transmission infrastructure. So like we're alleviating some of the roadblocks, which is good, but our, one of our problems is that unlike building a power plant that sells a commodity, the transmission financing game is just a little bit more quirky um, and like trying to interconnect disparate parts of the country um, is not necessarily something that I will, that I think has like an obvious monetary incentive for businesses to tackle. And I, and like, that's really how we thought about everything, right? It's like, we just want to create the conditions that make people want to do these things, whether it's financial incentives or whatever. And I think that there are things like that, like our transmission infrastructure that need a more targeted approach. And I don't necessarily know that that means that we need to straight up fund it. I mean, God knows there's all kinds of problems with like government contracts, but I would have liked to see something that was more focused on that. And then I, I mean, I've always been in favor of other economic uh, incentives. So either carbon taxes or things like cap and trade. Um, I don't think that there are perfect solutions, but I think that there are starting points and ways to get businesses and also individuals to start understanding that like our economic choices have impacts. There are huge problems to that. 
like we see gas prices where they are today and, and what what they're doing to to people's lives but you know if 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 you talk to somebody who's trying to quantify how much it costs kind of the world and from a from a climate change perspective right you would you would immediately say that the cost of gas is too low because it just doesn't include all of the damage that it does to the environment and all the damage that it does by contributing to climate change right so there are there are things that are are not easy and i think they'd have like the legislation wouldn't be easy which is why i think you would love to see it be approached by many different angles by people who don't necessarily agree in big government by but agree in the premise that we need to do something about this and would have like different ideas and i think that's what is really missing here we really are just bringing forward the same old ideas like let's throw some tax credits at it um and like the like i don't know if tesla's stock popped but i'm sure it got a nice little boost due to the fact that we're throwing more money at electric cars but really we have like one electric car manufacturer building at scale today so there's yeah there's a lot to be done i think the other thing is it is it you know climate change is one of those things that really just doesn't respect borders you talked about what's going on in france and we've seen flooding and monsoons in india and wildfires in australia like this is happening everywhere and you know, a lot of people who have wanted to prevent us from doing stuff will point to countries like China and India, but it is just another one of those things where we really need to work on this at like a global level. And that might mean, you know, funding projects in other countries that will turn to coal or something else um, in absent, you know, absent sort of international help and support. So, yeah. And that, and, you know, that's not something that's easy for an American taxpayer to stomach. And, but I think like, if we're serious about dealing with this, it has to be like a very much a multi-pronged approach and it's got to include international cooperation, which yeah, we're, we're not quite there, but it, but you're right. I shouldn't poo-poo it the way that I am. It's definitely, especially in, in light of where we were two weeks ago, um, it's definitely something. It is something. But you're right. You you point to the biggest issue where it's like these programs aren't politically attractive. Like no one wants to hear that we just put 50 billion to for transmissions. Like I don't even know what that is. You know what I mean? Like like we, we don't we, we only care about transmissions and generators and grids when they don't work. Like that's the only time you ever hear about them, think about them. And I, I still don't even really know how it all works. And so to to throw taxpayer money at that is difficult. You, it's hard to go home and campaign on, look at all the money we just got to put towards our transition, our transmissions. And it's maybe even harder to say like, oh, look, we just funded this project in sub-Saharan sub, sub Africa with all this money. But like, this is actually going to be super good for the planet. That, that, that doesn't work to someone that's like choosing between air conditioning and gas to get to their job, right? And so it's it's hard. It's where politics, it's more like the real life of like. That's where it's easy for us to sit back and criticize politicians, but it's the real life of politics is actually making like decisions like this and making policies is really hard. Uh, but it, like you said, it's something. And I think your other point about the globalization of it is just so true. Like no one, no one area has done better than Europe in the last decade plus about 
addressing climate change and trying to put in policies to reduce Europe's carbon footprint. And it seems like they are getting hit the hardest or as hard as anybody else in the world with climate change, because no matter what policies you are doing in London or in Paris or in Brussels or in Munich, it, the climate change doesn't care, right? Like it, it, it cares about the whole planet. So I think that's a, that's a point well taken. And we're certainly not at the height of global cooperation right now. So, but maybe, maybe something we can hold out hope for maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, like I, I know I feel I feel like I feel like we we should probably wrap this up. But you you said something that now now it got me thinking. Like I started off by sort of saying that I think this is one of those issues that's quintessentially like designed for government to tackle. Like it it's one of those things that really impacts everybody, but nobody individually is going to do it on their own, and they really can't do it on their own. So they require a government. But I think your secondary point of like. Yeah, but which individual politician is going to sign on for something that really they can't bring home to their constituents in any meaningful way other than to say it probably costs you some money and that like the benefits are probably even if they are realized are not going to be realized anytime soon. Um, And like, right, like perhaps you would never even notice like if we sort of plateaued and like the worst is what we're dealing with today nobody's going to come pat you on the back and be like well at least the world's not ended it hasn't ended in 25 years so it yeah it's like a real mental pretzel for how we have designed our our societies to operate that like nobody really in power has the uh yeah they don't have any incentive to 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 help us because like we're not going to reward them for it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it comes back to that it becomes like a voter issue, right? Like, because politicians will only respond to like the will of the people, which is exactly what it's designed to do. And so until enough people are upset about it, until enough people are willing to make a sacrifice, which is far easier for me to make a sacrifice than a lot of other people out there, which is understandable. But until like that groundswell of, of support happens, I don't know that we can expect the changes on the scale that you potentially want. Yeah. Which is, I think a little scary or should be scary for more people, but hopefully, I mean, we are, uh, we are an inventive bunch after all. So hopefully we'll come up with some solutions while we, while we build this ship and and sail it. (laughs) We'll see. And maybe Europe will start, maybe Europe will start using uh, air conditioning. Yeah, right. There's... They've been so, you probably know this, but they like for decades, they've been like, that's such an American luxury to have like air conditioning in your house. <laughs> well, 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 not, not such a, so a luxury anymore. Well, I saw that in Ireland hit 90 degrees for just the second time in their recorded history. So that's, I think that explains a lot. Like even like people in Oregon don't have air conditioners really. Uh, it's like, a... so yeah, I don't know. Things are definitely, um, things are uh-huh. definitely. Yeah. I remember the first time I went to Ireland, they didn't have like freezers in most places. And I was, I was like shocked. Like as a kid, I was, I don't what <laughs> you don't have a freezer. And they were just like, why would you need a freezer? That seems like excessive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why do you want your beer to be cold? like room temperature is 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 right (laughs) yeah 
All right, Ricky. Good to be back. Indeed. Till next time. Till next time. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised, but what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The values sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share like American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days we'll leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find And chase the lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What oh, well, I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.